Welcome, Brainy, back to the Brainiac List podcast for Book 10, Chapter 20. What does Pierre learn about war on his trek to the battle? Why did the militiamen at the end make such an impression on Pierre? And what are your predictions on Pierre contributing to an actual battle? <laughs> Why do you think that? Cora Kickass says, I can't possibly think that Pierre will do anything of value in battle. He's such a naif. Twisted Every Way says, I'm surprised that Pierre wasn't a little more turned off by the cartfuls of wounded men. I thought he'd be a little shocked at being confronted directly with the realities of war. I thought our Pierre was a little sheltered and naive, but perhaps not. The peasants have been conscripted to the militia, and for some reason this makes Pierre swell with pride, when it should make him question what's going on. He's really doing it. He's going there. Will he be of any use? Yet to be determined. Um, (laughs) But he's making his jolly way to the war. Quick one tonight. That's it. That's the conversation. Let's keep reading. Chapter 21 goes like this. Pierre stepped out of his carriage and passing the toiling militiamen ascended the knoll from which according to the doctor the battlefield could be seen. It was about 11 o'clock. The sun shone somewhat to the left and behind him and brightly lit up the enormous panorama which, rising like an amphitheatre, extended before him in the clear, rarefied atmosphere. From above, on the left, bisecting that amphitheatre, wound the Smolensk High Road, passing through a village with a white church some 500 paces in front of the knoll and below it. it, uh, This was Borodino. Below the village... The road across the river by a bridge and winding down and up rose higher and higher to the village of Valuevo, visible about four miles away where Napoleon was then stationed. Beyond Valuevo, the road disappeared into a yellowing forest on the horizon. Far in the distance in that birch and fir forest to the right of the road, the cross and belfry of the Kolacha Monastery gleamed in the sun. Here and there, over the whole of that blue expanse, the right and left of the forest and the road, Smoking campfires could be seen and indefinite masses of troops, owls and the enemies. The ground to the right along the course of the Kalocha and Mosca rivers was broken and hilly. Between the hollows, the villages of Bezuboa, Bezubova and Zakharino showed in the distance. On the left, the ground was more level. There were fields of grain and the smoking ruins of Semenovsk. Semenovsk which had been burned down, could be seen. All the Pierre saw was so indefinite that neither the left nor right side of the field fully satisfied his expectations. Nowhere could he see the battlefield he had expected to find, but only fields, meadows, troops, woods, the smoke of campfires, villages, mounds and streams, and try as he would, he could decry no militia position in this place, which teemed with life. Nor could he even distinguish our troops from the enemies. I must ask someone who knows, he thought, and addressed an officer who was looking with curiosity at his huge unmilitary figure. May I ask you, said Pierre, what village that is in front? Borodino, isn't it? said the officer, turning to his companion. Borodino, the other corrected him. The officer, evidently glad of an opportunity to talk, moved up to Pierre. Are these our men there? Pierre inquired. Yes, and there further on are the French, said the officer. There they are, there, you can see them. Where, where? asked Pierre. One can see them with the naked eye. Why, there. The officer pointed with his hand to the smoke visible on the left beyond the river, and the same stern and serious expression that Pierre had noticed on many faces he had met came into his face. 
Ah, those are the French over there. Over there, and over there, Pierre pointed to a knoll on the left which, near which some troops could be seen. Those are ours. Ah, ours, and there, Pierre pointed to another knoll in the distance with a big tree on it, near a village that lay in a hollow where also some campfires were smoking and something black was visible. That's his again, said the officer. It was the Chevrodino Redoubt. It was ours yesterday, but now it is his. Then how about our position? Our position, replied the officer with a smile of satisfaction. I can tell you quite clearly, because I constructed nearly all of our entrenchments. There, you see, there's our centre at Borodino just there. And he pointed to the village in front of them with the white church. That's where one crosses the Colaccio. You see down there where the rows of hay are lying in the hollow? There's the bridge. That's our centre. Our right flank is over there. He pointed sharply to the right, far away in the broken ground. That's where the Moskva River is, and we have thrown up three redoubts there, very strong ones. The left flank, here the officer paused. Well, you see, that's difficult to explain. Yesterday our left flank was there at Chevrodino, you see, where the oak is. But now we have withdrawn our left wing, now it is over there. Do you see that village in the smoke? That's Semenovsk, yes, there. He pointed to the Uravsky's knoll. But the battle will hardly be there. His, having moved his troops there, is only a ruse. He will probably pass around to the right of the Moskva. But wherever it may be, many a man will be missing tomorrow, he remarked. An elderly sergeant, who had approached the officer while he was giving these explanations, had awaited in a silence for him to finish speaking. But at this point, evidently not liking the officer's remark, interrupted him. Gabions must be sent for, he said sternly. The officer appeared abashed, as though he understood that one might think of how many men would be missing tomorrow, be ought not, but ought not to speak of it. Well, send number three company again, the officer replied hurriedly. And you? Are you one of the doctors? No, I've come on my own, answered Pierre, and he went down the hill again, passing the militiamen. Oh, those damned fools, muttered the officer, who followed him, holding his nose as he ran past the men at work. There they are, bringing him, bringing her, coming. There they are. They'll be here in a minute. Voices were suddenly heard, saying, and officers, soldiers and militiamen began running forward along the road. A church procession was coming up the hill from Borodino. First along the dusty road came the infantry in ranks, bareheaded and with arms reversed. From behind them came the sound of church singing. Soldiers and militiamen ran bareheaded past Pierre towards the procession. They are bringing her, her our protectress. The Iberian Mother of God, someone cried. The Smolensk mother of God, another corrected him. The, the militiamen, both those who had been in the village and those who had been at work on the battery, threw down their spades and ran to meet the church procession. Following the battalion that marched along the dusty road came priests in their vestments, one little old man in a hood with attendants and singers. Behind them, soldiers and officers bore a large dark-faced icon with an embossed metal cover. This was the icon that had been brought from Smolensk and had since accompanied the army. Be behind, before and on both sides, crowds of militiamen with bare heads walked, ran and bowed to the ground. At the summit of the hill they stopped with the icon. The men who had been holding it by the linen bands attached to it were relieved by others. The chanters relit their censers, and service began. The hot rays of the sun beat down vertically, and a fresh soft wind played with the hair of the bare heads and with the ribbons decorating the icon. The singing did not sound loud under the open sky. An immense crowd of bareheaded officers, soldiers and militiamen surrounded the icon. 
behind the priests, and a chanter stood the notabilities on a spot reserved for them. A bold general with a St. George's cross on his neck stood just behind the priest's back, and without crossing himself, he was evidently a German, patiently waited, awaited the end of the service which he considered it necessary to hear to the end, probably to arouse the patriotism of the Russian people. Another general stood in a martial pose, crossing himself by shaking his hand in front of his chest while looking about him. Standing among the crowd of peasants, Pierre recognised several acquaintances among these notables, but did not look at them. His whole attention, his whole attention was absorbed in watching the serious expression on the faces of the crowd of soldiers and militiamen who were all gazing eagerly at the icon. As soon as the tired chanters who were singing the service for the twentieth time that day began lazily and mechanically to sing Save from Calamity Thy Servant, O Mother of God, and the priests and deacon chimed in, for, the, for to thee under God we all flee as to an inviolable bulwark and protection. There again kindled in all those faces the same expression of consciousness of the solemnity of the impending moment that Pierre had seen on the faces at the foot of the hill at Mozhaisk, and momentarily on many and many faces he had met that morning. And heads were bowed more frequently, and hair tossed back, and sighs and the sound of men made as they crossed themselves were heard. The crowd round the icon suddenly parted and pressed against Pierre, someone a very important personage, judging by the haste with which he, which way with which way was made for him, was approaching the icon. It was Kutuzov, who had been riding round the position, and on his way back to Tatarinova, had stopped where the service was being held. Pierre recognised him at once by his peculiar figure, which distinguished him from everybody else. With a long overcoat on his exceedingly stout, round-shouldered body, with uncovered white head and puffy face showing the white ball of the eye he had lost, Kutuzov walked with plunging, swaying gait, into the crowd and stopped behind the priest. He crossed himself with the accustomed movement, bent till he touched the ground with his hand and bowed his white head with a deep sigh. Behind Kutuzov was Benigsen and the suite. Despite the presence of the commander-in-chief who attracted the attention of all the superior officers, the militiamen and soldiers continued their prayers without looking at him. When the service was over, Kutuzov stepped up to the icon, sank heavily to his knees, bowed to the ground, and for a long time tried vainly to rise, but could not do so on account of his weakness and weight. His white head twitched with the effort. At last he rose, kissed the icon as a child does, with naively pouting lips, and again bowed till he touched the ground with his hand. The other generals followed his example, then the officers, and after them, with excited faces pressing on one another, crowding, panting, and pushing, scrambled, the soldiers and militiamen. Alright, that's that. Bit of a religious ceremony going on and Kutuzov's getting really involved. Cool. Whatever does it for you. Alright guys, see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening.